You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Our text this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, the verses 24 to 31. Last Sunday, we considered how the Lord Jesus appeared to the twelve without Judas, of course, being present, or Thomas. And this Sunday, we turn to Jesus appearing to the twelve, including Thomas. John 20, beginning at verse 24, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in this house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we really need God? That question came to mind as I was reading a best-selling book by Richard Dawkins called The God Delusion. In it, he mocks religion and presents evolutionary biology as an alternative. And then there is also Christopher Hutchins' book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything in which he manages to blame almost all the ills in the world on one religion or another. And so there are many more books today that are catching the fancy of a lot of people and asking them to lead or to to ask, who needs God? Who needs the Lord? But then, beloved, in the midst of this sort of debate, we have a week like Last week, a week in which 32 innocent people were gunned down by a madman in Virginia, a week in which over 200 people were blown to pieces in Iraq, a week in which another Canadian soldier died in Afghanistan, and a week in which here in our home and congregation a mother and grandmother of 96 years died. And faced with those kind of events, the answer to the question, who needs God, I dare say becomes rather obvious. We do. We people living in this broken, vulnerable, death-ridden world need someone. We need help. We need huge help. Yes, and in the midst of considering all of this, it's good once again to turn to the Holy Scriptures and to John Gospel, chapter 20 in particular, for solace. For what do we find there? Beloved, we find help. It's also in our scene together this morning, our risen Lord appears again to his disciples, and we shall see together that he confronts the doubting He blesses the distant, and he reassures the disciples. Well, beloved, if you had asked the disciples or the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially that inner group of disciples around Good Friday and Easter, the question, who needs God? There was little doubt that they would have answered in unison, we do. For these people knew their need. Unlike people such as Dawkins and Hutchins, they had come face to face with their human limitations and they had run horribly, horribly stuck. But then God came to the rescue. He came in the person of his risen and resurrected son. On the evening of that first Easter day, Jesus had come to the twelve. But you remember they were not all there. 
Judas, called Iscariot, had taken his own life. And Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin, was not there either. John does not tell us why, but he was not there. And if you think of it in a way, that's kind of ironic. For of all of the twelve, he was one of those who needed it most. By nature, Thomas tended to look always at the dark side of life. And he was not afraid to voice his reservations. For example, when the Lord Jesus was busy during his ministry on the other side of the Jordan River and he received word that his friend Lazarus was sick, he decided to go back to Judea. But then his disciples, you may recall, were horrified. And why? Well, because not so long before, the Jews there had tried to stone the Lord Jesus. And so there was great danger in Judea. But nevertheless, Jesus was determined to return. And then suddenly we hear Thomas say to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is of the view that no good can come out of this and that death awaits not only Jesus, but all of them. And he takes the gloomy view. And in a way, he does it again in John 14. No sooner has Jesus finished speaking about preparing a place for his disciples and telling them that they know the way. Then Thomas speaks up with a downcast face and in a desperate voice. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Thomas obviously possessed a gloomy and an insecure nature. But there is more, for after the Lord Jesus had appeared to the twelve that Easter evening, the other disciples made sure that the missing Thomas heard all about it. And they told him, we've seen the Lord. Did Thomas believe them? No, he shakes his head and he demands proof. Unless I see the real nail marks in his hands and put my finger in the nails there and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You see, Thomas, true to his nature, continues to hold on to the dark side. And he's not prepared to let it go just because some of his fellow disciples say so. And now, of course, at this point, some people who read this get their noses out of joint. And they are prepared to take a strip out of Thomas. And you know as well as I, there are many people who call him by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. And they criticize him roundly and they hold him up as a kind of model how not to react. How not to believe. But I ask you, is that fair? When the women came with the news about Jesus risen, did the other disciples believe them? And when earlier Jesus himself spoke over and over again about his impending death and resurrection, did any of them believe him? You see, it's not just Thomas who doubts and in a way demands proof. 
They all do. And so in a way, they should all be abraded and they should all be classified as a bunch of doubting Thomases. And while we're at it, why don't we include ourselves as well? Would we have reacted any differently if we had been living in those days? Are we made of superior stuff? Hardly. Let us recognize our weaknesses in those of Thomas and in the rest of the disciples. And so go easy on the judgmentalism. And do so, beloved, for another reason as well. Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself did. For look, he comes again. It is precisely a week later to the same place. The same doors are still locked. And suddenly he stands before them. And what does he say? He says exactly the same thing that he said a week before. Peace be with you. And what that means is that he has twice now appeared to them on the first day of the week, on the day of his glorious resurrection. And as well, it is so that twice now on that day he has brought to them peace. And we ask, is it a coincidence? Is it just an accident? Well, perhaps as some scholars say, what we have here really is the institution of the New Testament church proper and the marking or the setting aside of the first day of the week as the church's new day of worship, new day of celebrating the peace of God that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whatever the case may be, beloved, there is little doubt that with his second appearance, the Lord Jesus very much has Thomas in his sights. Why, as you read this account, it seems as if the Lord Jesus Christ had been there when Thomas had initially expressed his doubts to his fellow disciples and when he had laid down his conditions for belief. Thomas wanted to see and he wanted to touch well, now Jesus invites him. He says, take your finger, put him in my hands. Take your hand, put it in my side. And notice that all the while there is no criticism directly of Thomas by the Lord. And that tells us he understands the nature of Thomas's doubts. And he doesn't dismiss them, nor does he ridicule them. No, he, he comes to meet them and to resolve them. In short, you can say our Lord and Savior shows himself to be a caring high priest who knows and understands and sympathizes and identifies as well as addresses our infirmities. It once again underlines the fact that what a glorious Savior we have. Yes, and suddenly Thomas realizes this as well. 
where he blurts out in a voice filled with awe and surrender, my Lord and my God. What a confession. What a proclamation. What an utterance. And indeed, if we, it's of such a nature that we do well to stop and think about it for a moment. Consider, first of all, its contents and its steps. First, Thomas declares that Jesus is Lord. That's another way of saying, my master, my owner. It comes, it's language that comes from the world of slavery. It stresses his rights and our non-rights. It speaks about his supremacy and his sovereignty. And second, Thomas goes further and he declares Jesus to be God. And that, of course, is a confession of divinity. Here, in other words, is more than a man. Here is more than a superman. Here is someone who goes beyond all humanity and is connected to heaven itself. But then, sir, Thomas goes further yet. For what he does is he brings both names, both titles together in one sentence, one statement, one confession. And in doing so, Thomas, dark, gloomy, insecure Thomas, makes the greatest confession of all. Earlier, Peter had said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Thomas goes further. He says, here is God. And here is the Lord. Here in Christ we have supremacy and divinity in one person. In other words, here we have the most exalted of all confessions. Yes, and here we have as well God's answer to the needs of mankind. Do we still need God? If what happened this past week at Virginia Tech and on the streets of Baghdad and the roads of Kabul and even in Manoa Manor, if all those things are any indication, then yes, we need God. We need him to solve the problems of our life and of our world. Who will deal with our lives of sin and our bodies of death? Who will do something about this world of violence and bloodshed? Who will fix this planet that appears to be self-destructing? He will. The Savior that Thomas points to. The one and only Lord and God. And what is now our Savior's reaction to all of this? Does he say, Thomas, Thomas, you exaggerate. Thomas, you're going much too far. Our Savior says, because you have seen me, You have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Some of you may know that the Apostle Peter says something similar in his first letter. He writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now what does all of that mean? It means, generally speaking, that hearing is more important than seeing. That the visual has to take a backseat to the audible. Or to put it in other words, preaching and hearing have priority over depiction and sight. And it's good that we are reminded of this, for we live in a highly visual age. And it's becoming more visual all the time with the advent of plasma screens and iPod movies and cell phone pictures. The world is turning away from the written word and the spoken word, and it's moving toward the visual word. And yet in spite of all of this, it is still the written and the spoken word that should be first in our lives. God comes to us, Jesus is saying today, not to see, but to hearing. Faith comes to the hearing of the gospel. I notice he even says that those who haven't seen him who hear about him and yet believe, are blessed, happy, fortunate, set apart. And that, beloved, includes us today. None of us have seen him. None of us have touched him. But still we believe in him. Still we we love him. And why? Because we believe what the Word of God tells us about Him. Because the Spirit working through the Word convicts and convinces us about Him. And that means that we belong among the company of the blessed, the truly, truly fortunate, But at the same time, remember as well that we are only really blessed when confession meets conviction. Going back to Thomas and his great confession about Christ, I left something out. First, he calls Jesus Lord. Second, he calls Jesus God. Thirdly, he combines the two and calls him Lord and God. But there's a fourth. There's a fourth step, and you mustn't miss it. And what? Well, Thomas adds something. He adds something very personal. He he says that Jesus is my Lord 
and my God. You see, Thomas goes out of his way to embrace this Savior and to lay claim to Him. And beloved, we must do the same. Together with Thomas, we must get our theology right. And together with Thomas, we must get our hearts right. And those two go together. You can have the best theology in the world, but if it doesn't move your heart to devotion in Christ, it misses the mark. And you can have the best of personal feelings and intentions and desires about Christ, but if your theology is not right, it too misses the mark. True believing is always a matter of both. It takes together right believing and heart commitment. And we need to remember that and practice that. Know your Savior and love your Savior. Yes, and John says, there is much here to know and much to love. For he goes on in verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And you may know in the next and the final chapter, he adds, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. You see, there's a lot more. Every one of the gospel writers tells us only some of the good news. None of them, not even John tells us all of it. I suppose that for the rest we shall have to wait. To wait until the day when Christ returns. Perhaps then we shall know all of it. All the glory. And all the detail. But then again, perhaps not. In the meantime, however, there is no need to fret. For John goes on to say, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. Quite simply, he's telling us that although our knowledge of Christ may be limited, it is still sufficient. We know enough from what he writes and from what the other gospel writers tell us that we may know and believe that Jesus is the anointed Son of God. The Gospels identify the Savior. And they do so clearly and emphatically. And John says they do so sufficiently. And the result is we have a firm basis for our faith. We know who Jesus really is. But that's not all that we know. There's something else as well. 
Why is believing in this Jesus of John's gospel so necessary? Because by doing so, we may have life. We may have life in his name. And you can say with those words, John has come full circle. You remember he began, and that's why we read chapter 1. He began the gospel with the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. And he also began his gospel with this stress on life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Without Christ, you're in darkness. With Christ, you're in the light. So you see, John begins his gospel with Jesus, the Son of God, and he ends his gospel with Jesus, the Son of God. And he begins his gospel by telling us that there is life to this Son. And he ends it by saying that true glory is complete, eternal, everlasting life is through him as well. So who needs God? All of us need Him. All of us need His Son. The whole world needs Him. And why do we need Him? For the sake of life. Only He is able to fix this broken world. Only he is able to mend sinful hearts. Only he is able to renovate this planet. The atheists and the naysayers like Dawkins and Hutchins have their criticism of religion in general and Christianity in particular. And in all honesty, it has to be said that not all of their criticisms are false. Mankind has made a, a frightful mess in this world in the name of God and sometimes in the name of Christ as well. But still the facts remain that the critics supply no answers and offer no solutions. But the word of our God, it does. It calls on us to believe in the Christ, the Son of God, for by so doing we shall have life in His name. That's the call that has to go out into all the world. That's the call, the only call, if when believed, can give real life. Yes, last week many people died in many different places. And you and I have no way of knowing how many of them called on the name of Christ our Lord and God and received life. But thankfully we do know of at least one, namely our sister Van Dyke. She believed in Jesus as the only Son of God. And her gift is the gift of life. 
And may she be joined by many more. And may we all who are here assembled together this morning and still living, may we join her as well in confessing and in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so have life. Who needs God? We do. And all of humanity and all of creation needs Him as well. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.